Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I'm putting on my headphones. That was that creaking sound. Richard Wilbur, Richard Wilbur, Richard Wilbur. It's a name you may not know, but I discovered Richard Wilbur's poetry some years ago. And when I started doing a poetry podcast, I wrote a list of people I wanted to do. And Richard Wilbur was right up there and I've just never got round to it. And I think because I don't feel I finished understanding him yet. Now that is true of every good and very good poet in that the ascent is where the joy is, the climb. And I never reach a point where I'm putting the flag in the top. I think I could do another series of Frank Skinner's poetry podcast with all the same poems, and it could be called uh, Frank Skinner's poetry podcast, open parentheses, furthermore, close parentheses, and it could always begin with me saying, oh, and furthermore, and then other things that I've thought about that poem since I talked about it before. So that's what great poems do they grow on you but Richard Wilbur I think well you'll see I hope you'll enjoy the groping uh, not a sentence I often use Richard Wilbur was born in 1921 and died in 2017 I got into the habit of giving you dates just so you get a sense of who you're listening to and he was a poet laureate of the USA from 87 to 88, the a normal set term for an American Poet Laureate is two years. It's not like in the UK where you can go on and on. So I'm going to start with a poem from 1947 by Richard Wilbur, and it's called A Dubious Night. Already, I think, he's got me. What a great title for a poem. A Dubious Night. And we'll come back to the title, because often titles don't really make any sense until you've read the poem. But anyway, here we go. I'm going to give you the first two stanzas, and I'm going to tell you up front, though I don't wish to frighten you, that this is in uh, Terza Rima. T-E-R-Z-A-R-I-M-A. And that means that each stanza, each little lump of poetry, has three lines. The first and third line rhyme, but the middle line rhymes with the first and third line in the next stanza. I know that's a bit... Let, let's, let me say it's A, B, A, B, C, B, maybe that helps. When I read it, it will make sense. But anyway, I think there's a reason. There's a reason for everything poems do within the context of a poem. Nothing is left to chance, in my opinion. Okay. A Dubious Night by Richard Wilbur from 1947. Here goes the first two stanzas. A bell diphthonging in an atmosphere of shying night air, summon some to prayer, down in the town, two deep lone miles from here. Yet wallows faint or sodden everywhere, 
in every ear, as if the twist wind wrung some ten years tangled echoes from the air. Right. A bell diphthonging in an atmosphere of shying night air. Diphthong, a diphthong, you may know, is when two vowels are put together. Um, what would be an example? Coin, for example. So you've got an O and an I, and they're both sort of slightly operating on their own R E sound, but something else is happening because they're together. So a bell diphthonging would be the two sounds of the bell. I'm going to posit ding and dong as examples of bell differential sounds. And those are working together like a diphthong to create a sound all of its own. A bell diphthonging in an atmosphere. And, and you notice that atmosphere is going to rhyme with here in the third line and the prayer of the second line is going to rhyme with everywhere and air in the next stanza. As I predicted, a bell diphthonging in an atmosphere of shying night air. So the bell is making this sound comprised of its two distinctive sounds and it's diphthonging in an atmosphere of shying night air. Shying is like a coconut shy when you're throwing something or a horse shying, jumpy. That the, the air is um, gusting a little. Okay, and that may affect the sound. A bell diphthonging in an atmosphere of shying night air summons some to prayer. So we've got internal rhyme there of air and prayer in the same line and also summons some to prayer. So already Wilbur can't resist just enjoying himself mid-stanza. Down in the town, more internal rhyme. Down in the town, two deep lone miles from here. Now, two miles, not that far. But the way Wilbur puts it, two deep lone miles. So they're deep, they're profound and important in some way. Or maybe the town is also in a valley, so you're going down deep. But lone, you'll be isolated and alone. It feels like a very important individual decision, this walk from here to the church. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, The Sundowners, which is largely about sheep shearing, when Peter Ustinov says to the young boy who's just moved from his parents' shack to the shared shack of the male workers, which is about 100 yards. And he says, yes, it's 100 yards, but it's the longest journey you'll ever make. And I think he means that he's journeyed from childhood to manhood by moving from parents to the men's accommodation. And here, I think, two deep lone miles. I think that's a, a long walk in many ways to the church. So down in the town, two deep low miles from here, yet wallows faint or sudden everywhere in every ear. So although the church is two miles away, the bells wallows faint or sudden everywhere in every ear. Faint or sudden. So it's it's sort of 
playing around in the uh, in that shying night air. This sound is coming and going, and it becomes a bit more staccato and a bit more sonorous, as if the twist wind wrung some tenuous tangled echoes from the air. Fantastic! Oh man, Richard Wilbur. As if the twist wind, this swirling wind, wrung some tenuous tangled echoes from the air, like these bells have been ringing for a long time, ten years, and they've somehow lingered, their echoes have stayed, and tonight's wind has just woken them up, so the bell sound is swirling around and everyone's hearing something. They're hearing, uh, be it faint or sodden, it is in every ear. The church is calling to these people. Okay, into the uh, the next two stanzas. And there's only four plus one line, so, you know, I'm not pushing it. What Kiris, it says, K-Y-R-I-E-S, a Kiri, I should say, it's like a, a Kiri eleison, um, Lord have mercy. It's a, it's a prayer, a prayer of for forgiveness. What Kiris, it says, are mauled among the queer elisions of the mist and murk. I'm going to say it again. It's so good, Richard Wilbur. What Kiris, it says, are mauled, listen to the M sounds, mauled among, so some of the, the bell sounds, some of the, well, you might even be able to hear the choir, but it's, it's a long way away, mauled among, it's got that M sound. The queer elisions of the mist and murk. So the mist and murk also, just the light of the night is confusing and dappled and hard to grasp. And when he says the queer elisions of the mist and murk, elision again is a grammatical term like diphthonging. Diphthonging, you'll remember, is two vowels used to form a different sound. An elision is that thing in words where we are becomes we are and I am becomes I'm. It's two words meeting and losing a little bit in the middle in order to join. And, and the sound, but also the light, the mist and the murk, they're doing that. They're forming queer elisions and the sound of the bells seemed to be mingled up with the, the night's weird, mixed, dappled light in this way. I think it's interesting that Wilbur uses grammatical terms, the diphthong and elision, because this seems like, I'm going to say, God is calling to the people who hear these bells. He is speaking if i may say he god is speaking and it makes sense then to use the the terminology of language to express it diphthongs and elisions because this is something being pulled apart this sound is being analyzed by the listener the speaker in this poem i'm going to do this stanza again what Kiris, it says, are mauled among the queer elisions of the mist and murk. You can hear the muffling of this. <laughs> <laughs> 
those M sounds. Of lights and shapes, the senses were unstrong. Okay, so the senses were unstrong. What does that mean? That they couldn't be played upon? Like an instrument that's been unstrung? It wasn't that we weren't picking up the, the melody of these bells, we weren't picking up the kiris, or does it mean unstrung as in the way that a string of beads can be unstrung, that we seem to have been separated, that the, the hearers of these bells seem not to be on the string anymore, they seem to have been separated from the the beads and I know we're thinking maybe rosary beads but I don't I, I don't want to stretch this but anyway the senses were unstrung so we're not quite getting it we're not quite off it we're not quite able to be played by this experience except that one star's synecdochic smirk burns steadily to me now, people think that when you read poetry, it's just like a pleasurable sound fest and you don't actually learn any facts. But there's always words. Poets love words so much that they're always seeking new ones. Synecdochic, I did not know what that meant. I looked it up. And it means when you use a part of something to express the whole so you might say that someone was the brains in that outfit. Or you might um, refer to a worker as a hired hand, for example. So here I think this star with its synecdochic smirk is representative of, if you like, the universe. So... The senses were unstrung. You're not quite feeling what what we're supposed to be feeling. I don't quite know what we're supposed to deduce from these bells calling us to church. The senses were unstrung, except that one star's synodocic smirk burns steadily to me. So I am getting a message, if you like, from looking at this star that nothing's odd and firm as ever is the masterwork. Now then, except that one star synecdochic smirk burns steadily to me. So I'm getting a message from this star which seems to, though it's a part of the universe, to represent everything in this instance. And the message is that nothing's odd, end of line... And firm as ever is the masterwork. Now, the masterwork, I'm assuming, is the universe stroke God's plan. That's what I'm getting here. But the break in the line, yes, it's our old friend, enjambment, where we get one sense from the end of the line, but the sentence hasn't ended. And if we continue to the end of the sentence, we get another sense. So it's a sort of a bog off. Buy one, get one free. So the message that is being told him by the star that nothing's odd. So relax. This is not as strange as you think. 
And firm as ever is the masterwork. Everything is still in place. The, the bells sound strange tonight. You're not really feeling it. No one seems to be responding to them, but don't worry. Nothing's odd. And firm as ever is the masterwork. Everything's still in place. Or let's not stop for the line break and continue to the end of the sentence for our meaning. So one star cynic docic smirk burns steadily to me, so that is communicating to him that nothing's odd and firm as ever is the masterwork. So the masterwork is ever odd and firm. And I like that better as a meaning. I like the idea of God's plan being odd and firm. Because I think it is odd. I fess up, I actually believe in God, but a lot of people I meet, and more or less all of my friends, don't. And they think it odd, and they ask me questions about its oddness. But I like the fact that it's odd and firm, that it's strange and weird and doesn't make any sense and has no reason and no scientific backup, but it still feels tangible and real. I, I like that contrast. And I think that's what's being said here. I should say I don't I haven't looked into Richard Wilbur's religious beliefs because I think well, I think you find them in the poem even if they don't have any sometimes with poets. If you've got any kind of God shaped hole in you, it's liable to be expressed subconsciously. So I, I feel God in this poem and maybe the Terza Rima, or is it Rima? I like Rima better for obvious reasons. The Terza Rima of having those three line stanzas, the middle line of which rhymes with the next stanza. What I like about that is it projects you along because you're looking for the next rhyme. So when I get in the first three lines, atmosphere, prayer, and here. I'm, I know prayer. Prayer is hanging there then. So I want to go into the next stanza to get everywhere and air. But meanwhile, between them, I've got wrong. So then I want to go into the next stanza and find among and unstrung. So you're propelled by Terza, Rima, Rima, and that seems to me like the bells ringing, the bells, whatever he's thinking, the bells continue their momentum. Bang, 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 bang. And so the Terzarima really seems to work because the bells are pushing him forward, no matter how slow and meditatory, that might not be a word, how thoughtful he is, the bells have their own pace and momentum and are untouched by his thoughts and people's response to it a bit like God's plan I suppose if you accept God by the way if you don't accept God that's absolutely fine just see it as a sort of poetic idea it's, it's fine so that and then there's one last line he says I weary of the confidence of God and this was the one of the sort of reasons I held back on Richard Wilbur because Am I going to come to you and say, I don't actually know what that means? What I'm going to do is I'm going to come to you and say, I'll tell you what I think it might mean. 
I weary of the confidence of God. I think there are two meanings here of confidence, potentially. Confidence as in, if I confide in you, a sort of a secret between us. And I think in this dubious night, remember it's called a dubious night, and to be dubious, as you know, is to be sort of near non-belief, almost not believing, sort of uncertain about something, feeling that something is questionable. And that's the sort of state of the faith that seems to be echoing around this poem. No one seems to be responding to these bells. The senses were unstrung. Why aren't we all racing to the church? I weary of the confidence of God. So I think if Wilbur, if, let's not say Wilbur, let's say the speaker of the poem does believe in God, if he's getting this message from the star that nothing's ardent, firm as ever is the masterwork, and I'm going to repeat that again, nothing's ardent and firm as ever is the masterwork. You, you get that grammatical thing. Of course you do. So I think because he feels like he's the only one there who's getting the synecdochic smirk, I think he weir when he says he wearies that he's tired of the confidence of God, sometimes it's hard being the only one who really knows. It's hard being the one who's being confided in, being the only one that hears the bells correctly, the only one who sees the synecdochic smirk and gets it, the only one who's in tune with the godness of the situation. That is difficult. So I think he might say, I'm weary of the confidence of God because God sort of confides in me through the smirking star. And uh, sometimes I wish it wasn't just me. I think he's sort of saying that. There's a saying, isn't it, that religious people use to make non-religious people feel stupid doesn't work in my experience and that if someone says why do you believe in this stupid fairy tale you come back and say those who dance are thought mad by those who cannot hear the music and obviously there are silent discos and stuff and all the music is through little uh, plugs in the ears and it does look strange if you if you're not looped in but there's also an inference, I think, that you don't hear the music and the music is a, quite an exclusive thing that not everyone gets. Bad luck, you don't hear it. Just trust me. But the speaker in this poem is saying, you know what, I do hear the music, but God, I wish a few other people could because it just being me is very wearing. It could be that or it could be I weary of the confidence of God. I weary... I'm tired out by the fact God seems to think it's going to be all right, that God's universe, as represented by the, the star, is saying nothing's odd and firm as ever is the masterwork. So everything's fine. It's okay. No one's going to church, probably. It's okay. I, um, I think it could be that, that he's I weary of the confidence of God. I wish God would be a bit more 
questioning of whether this is going to work, of whether these people are going to come round, whether he's doing enough to pull people in. He seems very confident that they're all going to find the light, and I'm not so sure. It could be that. If I had to vote for one of these... I think I'd say that the speaker is tired of the fact that he gets the God message and no one else around him seems to, and he finds that wearing. That's what I think. You know, I really hope that was okay. And I say that because, you know, when you do someone that you really love, which, let's face it, for me is most weeks, you don't want to let them down. I just don't want to let Richard Wilbur down. I'm going to do one more and I'll do it briskly. And this was the the first Richard Wilbur poem I discovered. And this was the one that I desperately wanted to do a podcast about. And I bottled it because I thought it is so out of kilter with modern sensibility that um, I don't mean it's like fiercely racist, sexist, etc. It's nothing like that. But it's just worldview is, yeah, it's not something you hear every day now. It's called Two Voices in a Meadow. It was written in 1961 by Richard Wilbur. I really love it, and I've loved it for a long time. And uh, there was some poetry thing, and they said, would you like to nominate a poem for our bank of poetry? And I said, yeah, Two Voices in a Meadow by Richard Wilbur. And they said, oh, never, never heard of that. I don't even know if they put it in. But anyway, here we go. It's it's two voices in a meadow. So you get one voice, and they say their bit, and then the second voice, and they say their bit, and we're done. The whole thing is like 16 lines or something? Okay. Two voices in a meadow, 1961. I should say the two voices. One is from a milkweed which is, uh, you know, a weed, a flower. And the second is from a stone. I say this in case you're expecting a sparkling dialogue or at least two sparkling monologues. I think they are sparkling, but see what you think. So first voice, a milkweed. And this is what the milkweed says. I'll give you the whole speech. It's brief. Anonymous as cherubs over the crib of God, white seeds are floating out of my burst pod. What power had I before I learned to yield? Shatter me, great wind, I shall possess the field. Right, anonymous as cherubs over the crib of God. Now, they are anonymous. I've never heard any of the cherubs named. You know, I'm talking about those little fat babies that fly over the crib of God when you see a nativity scene. Fat-winged babies, that's what we're talking about. And they are anonymous. But, of course, in normal context, they are still magical and of paradise, But this is why you don't want to be... You know, people say don't work with children or animals or God. Because if God's in the scene, you are always going to be a secondary figure. They're like extras at the nativity, the cherubs. But minor characters, I say only because of their juxtaposition with quite a major character. 
Anonymous as cherubs are for the crib of God. White seeds are floating. I'm going to tell you something about the milkweed. The milkweed has follicles, which is like a big pod. And eventually the pod splits. And this is how it continues, how it pollinates, how it disseminates its species. They float into the air like dandelion seeds, that kind of airborne pollination. White seeds are floating out of my burst pod. What power had I before I learned to yield? Now, this is what I mean about not really being in kilter with modern sensibility. I watch reality television, I'm going to be straight with you, and the thing that you hear said more than anything is, I can be anything I want to be. You know, follow your dream, and if you believe, it'll all come true. There's not much about yielding. There's not much about accepting who you are. I, I'll tell you this story... I once went on a ranch holiday in Montana because I'm slightly obsessed with the Wild West. And we got to the edge of a canyon and the cowboy says, right, off we go. And we all said, where are we going? And he said, we're going down the canyon. I'm talking about a cliff. And we all said, no, it's impossible to go down. He said, no, look, you can't ride down there, but your horse can what I want you to do is lean as far back as you can, release the reins and let the horse do it. Let go. And it was quite a scary thing to do. And I could feel the actual adrenaline tingle running through me as we went down. But I did let go. I yielded. And it worked perfectly. And... Certainly in Christianity, there is this image of humility as a superpower. And this is what I think is going on here. You could say, for example, of the Virgin Mary, if I may call her that, white seeds are floating out of my burst pod. What power had I before I learned to yield? So before she said, OK, I hear the plan. It's terrifying, but. I'm going to go with it. Shatter me, great wind, I shall possess the field. Could be the Virgin Mary saying to the Holy Spirit, who was about to conceive with her, shatter me, great wind, this invisible force. But shatter me is, again, not terribly modern idea, I don't think. And I'm loath to put it exclusively on the lips of a female character. So I could, you could also say of Jesus, white seeds are floating out of my burst pod. What power had I before I learned to yield? We're talking about the cross now. That's my doorbell. Don't worry about it. Unless it's the poetry police come to demand clarity. Shatter me, great wind, I shall possess the field. So the milkweed is saying, I was nothing before I learned to... Ye the poetry police are very, very determined. I'll tell you that. 
If it goes again, I'm going to get up and I'm not going to stop the podcast. I'm going to use this natural break to give you a moment of silence to try and work out what the hell I've been talking about for the last half hour or whatever it's been. So I think that that speech is about acceptance. It's about being who you are if you like. I once, for reasons you can imagine, went couple counselling. A couple counselling, I was going to say, then like a roving, a roving. Uh, my partner and I went to a couple counsellor because we were having, you know, problems. And one thing he said is, he said, I, you know, I hate to say this, but humanity can be split roughly into two categories. He said, and it's roughly about 50-50. People who think they are holding the reins of life, that they have some sort of control, and people who just feel they are blown as leaves in the wind. He said, and those are two key world views and you can identify one or the other in everyone. So that one, I think, is about, as I did in Montana, releasing the reins. That, when I say that one, I mean the milkweeds speech. Releasing the reins and allowing yourself to be, and literally in the case of the milkweed and its pollination, to be blown about by the wind with no input from you at all. Okay, let's hear what the stone has to say. And it gets a bit more colloquial with the stone. As casual as cow dung under the crib of God, I lie where chance would have me, up to the ears in sod. Why should I move? To move befits a light desire. The sill of heaven would founder, did such as I aspire. So the stone, as casual as cow dong under the crib of God, as opposed to being anonymous as cherubs over the crib of God, it's quite a, a switch in the uh, simile there. The initial simile of the milkweed compared the milkweed with these heavenly creatures and the stone compares itself with cow dung, as casual as cow dung under the crib of God. The Christian story, obviously, is that God, in the form of Jesus, was born in a stable, so cow dung would be around. I lie where chance would have me, now, that, I think, is another example of being blown by the wind. Most people feel that they will find their place, they will seek it out. But I lie where chance would have me up to the ears in sod. So the stone is partly buried in, in grass and mud and whatever else is on the floor of the stable. Why should I move? So... It's a whole questioning of ambition or ideas of change. I, I wrote an autobiography and one thing that I became aware of when I wrote about my life 
was the same themes that I find in my life now, the things I feel I've been trying to change for years, were there when I was about eight and they haven't changed. And it made me a bit, just a bit more accepting of who I am and what I am and not being on the brink of a new regime all the time to change me, to improve me, to make me the person I want to be rather than the person I am. Okay, why should I move? To move befits a light desire. So to move suggests some desire, some ambition in me, which I don't think is right for me as a stone. I have my place. I lie where chance would have me. Why should I move? I don't want to be one of the people who's trying to climb. I accept what I am, where I am. I accept my purpose in life. This is the sort of opposite of the social mobility idea. This is more in the Popeye the Sailor Man philosophy of I am what I am. Okay, to move befits a light desire. And, and then the stone pitches this as a justification. The sill of heaven, sill, S-I-L-L, like a windowsill, the support, the very basis, foundation and support strut of heaven would founder, the sill of heaven would founder, did such as I aspire. If creatures like me aspired and dreamt and had ambition and wanted to change, heaven would collapse. As I say, all those people on reality TV saying I can be anything I want to be, they would not fit in this meadow, these guys. So, you could say this was two expressions of humility as a superpower, of acceptance, of a eschewing of ambition and all the sort of not-so-nice side effects that comes with that, the ruthlessness and the constant aching jealousy of ambition. You could say that. You could also say that these are two contrasting voices because the milkweed, I buy the milkweed's argument that what power had I before I learned to yield? This acceptance has created something bigger than the milkweed. It's created more milkweeds. It's, it's done something beautiful and creative and special. The stone, for me might just be justifying indolence. Indolence I heard defined by the great 18th century writer Samuel Johnson. The indolent man is one whose day differs from his night only in as much as a couch differs from a bed. And the stone to me, as casual as cow dung under the crib of God, I lie where chance would have me. Is that an acceptance of, of, of one's lot? And is it a, a, a denial and defiant turning against the world and its need for ambition? Or is it just, I couldn't be bothered. 
I lie where chance would have me up to the ears inside. Why should I move? To move befits a light desire. The sill of heaven would founder, did such as I aspire. I don't know if the sill of heaven would founder, would, you know, would crumble if a stone thought, what about if I moved an inch and a half to the left? And this is, again, like I said, the, the, the thing is with Wilbur's poetry, it's, it's a bit like the milkweed and it's split part. It keeps releasing meaning and uh, I can't keep up with it. What I'm giving you in this podcast is just a freeze frame of my understanding, my interpretation of something which for me is a still-moving object. I might feel differently tomorrow. I know that's true of all poems for me, but somehow particularly Richard Wilbur's. Have a think about this poem. Is it two examples of acceptance? Is it two quite pure and noble denials of ambition and greed and striving and all those things which, when you think about it, creates the big corporations and their almost necessary attendant corruption. It leads to wars. It just leads to strife, ambition and striving and greed and wanting to be something better. Is it two things, a milkweed and a stone, denying that? Or is it a milkweed recognising the possible glory of yielding? And is it a stone thinking, well, I'm going to get on this bandwagon. It's a justification for doing nothing. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd rather they were both fabulous statements of anti-ambition. But... I don't know. Look, read more Richard Wilbur. I've got a Richard Wilbur book called Collected Poems 1943 to 2004. I could kill someone with it. That's the kind of size, the kind of heft of it. And honestly, I can open it virtually anywhere and find joy. So check out Richard Wilbur and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.